the people I want to find are the equivalent of students who write in library books. <laughs> um, because annotations, underlining, um, bits that are torn out, um, things that are drawn in, they're all things which can tell me about engagement. Mm -hmm. The clean and careful reader who leaves no traces is not really any use to me. Welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. Today I'm talking to Professor Margaret Connolly about her book on the reception of 15th century manuscripts by 16th century readers. Margaret is Professor of Paleography and Codicology in the schools of English and History here at the University of St. Andrews, as well as Director of the St. Andrews Institute in Medieval Studies. Her research engages primarily with Middle English language and literature and manuscript studies. My name is Selma Sondan and I'm a master's student of intellectual history at St. Andrews University. Thank you for listening and thank you, Margaret, for joining me today. So I think an introductory question is in order. Um, could you outline for laymen and women what are paleography and codeology, codicology? Sorry. Yeah, they sound um, very grand <laughs> and <laughs> scientific, um, essentially. Paleography is the study of handwriting. Mm -hmm. So when we look at old manuscripts or anything that's handwritten, paleography is the art or the science of uh, understanding the handwriting, deciphering it and identifying it mm -hmm. to a particular period um, because writing styles change over time or following the work of individual writers, individual scribes. So being able to identify that a certain scribe wrote um, this manuscript and this manuscript. Mm -hmm. So that's paleography, all about writing. Codicology is the study of the book or the codex. That's where the word comes from. Okay. So looking at a manuscript book and looking not so much just at the, the written elements, but the whole material object. So the writing support, is it paper? Is it parchment? How large is it? Is this object um, hardbound, like a modern hardbound book? Or has it got a limp binding? What kind of binding has it got? Has it got a binding at all? Mm. Um, how's it put together? So all of those, um, elements are really looking at the construction of a manuscript and that goes hand in hand with looking at the the writing the written yeah. contents that's very fascinating um and in 2019 you then published a monograph with cambridge university called um 16th century readers 15th century books continuities of reading in the english reformation um, to just start us off, could you outline what the book is about? The book is about how medieval books 
went on being used beyond the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. So as you move into the 16th century, all those medieval books, which are now old, have not suddenly disappeared. They're still there on people's shelves. And I wanted to think about, are they still being used? Are they still being read like books? Mm. Um, or have they now become special objects that are valuable because they're old? Or are they being neglected? They're just there because a previous generation of the family had them. Um, are they not really treasured as reading objects anymore? Mm -hmm. And in terms of context, what would you say are the relevant differences between the medieval and the post-medieval um, period? Which time frame were you looking at? And what would you say are the key historical facts that one would need to know to read your book? So the time frame that I looked at was driven by the, the point of focus of the book. It's not a general history. It's focused on a single family and mm -hmm. a collection of books that I was able to link to them. The collection of books isn't very large. It won't seem like a, a library by modern terms because this family, um, I could show, owned eight medieval manuscripts. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a very small number, but actually it's quite a large number to be able to connect with known individuals. Yeah. So my focus was this family. And I looked at two generations. Um, Thomas Roberts, who died in 1542, and his son Edmund Roberts, who died in 1585. So between them, their life dates spanned 1470 to 1585, so a, a long mm. um, century, and one that takes up most of the 16th, but the end of the 15th. That was the point of focus. And what I'm looking at, remember, is not books which are generated within that period, mm -hmm. but older books. Yeah. And because I was working essentially from the manuscripts, I went back to just the very end of the 14th century, I suppose, with the oldest text. But m the books themselves, the manuscripts themselves, were copied in the 15th century. So that gives me my 16th century readers, yeah. that's Thomas and Edmund, and whoever else in their family, um, and the 15th century books. And how would you say um, do the readers in the 16th century differ from the authors or the books in the 15th century? So readers and authors, two different things. Um, the readers in the 16th century, what I was looking for were signs that they were actually reading. Now that's quite difficult because mm -hmm. people can read books and not leave any trace on them. They can be very careful, tidy readers, um, very clean, yeah. um, or they can be quite messy and scrappy. The people I want to find are the equivalent of students who write in library books um, because annotations, underlining, um, bits that are torn out, um, things that are drawn in, they're all things which can tell me about engagement. Mm -hmm. The clean and careful reader who leaves no traces is not really any use to me because I can't see their activities. Um, mm. 
So that's the readers. Um, and of course, once a book's made, um, first of all, you asked about authors. Um, so you have the author who writes the text in the Middle Ages, but then that text is copied out by hand by a scribe and then by other scribes. That's how books multiply. So you get your copy of a late 14th century or a 15th century text and then that volume is the book which is read by readers in the 15th century and then on into the 16th century and until that process stops. But you've got layers or generations of readers who may be leaving marks in the book. And another challenge is to pick through those layers and try and identify, okay, this person signed their name, but which of these marks did he make? Mm. Did he make all of them? Um, can I see that there's different writing here? This is where it goes back to yeah. paleography. <laughs> or different colours of ink that show um, that there was engagement at different points. And um, in terms of methodology, which research questions did you set out to answer? One question was to do with engagement. Mm -hmm. um, and that question of how much are they really reading um, and what signs can I find of that? Um, another broader question, but related to that, was these are quite old texts by this point, so are people still interested in them? Mm -hmm. Have they still got relevance? And can we see that in the traces that they're leaving? Are there some points in these manuscripts where um, there are texts which have no annotations and others which are heavily annotated, which might be an indication that these ones are still of interest, mm. but the clean ones were not? You've got to be very careful with the interpretation of this kind of evidence. Yeah. Um, but, but another question um, related to that was not just whether this material is kind of aged well, I suppose, but because of bigger changes in society and history between the 16th century and the 15th century, mm. are people still responding in the same way to the intention of the medieval author or are they interpreting it differently mm. or do they not value now what the medieval author wrote and that of course goes to the, the big question which is that um, when medieval authors wrote their texts they were living in a very different world from my 16th century readers, mm -hmm. because they're either side of the Reformation. Yeah. Um, before we go more into mm. detail about your findings, I'd like to know a bit more about how you approached um, the research questions. Uh, you said before that you dealt with a set of manuscripts owned by one family. Could you um, describe a bit more what kind of family that was, where did they live? Um, geographically, demographically? So I met the manuscripts first before the family and I came across, whilst I was doing another project, I came across two manuscripts that had the same names in them and that was what sparked my interest. And I quickly discovered that the family that I was interested in 
were based partly in London and partly in Middlesex. I said quickly discovered because I did quickly discover that, but then when I went to look for more details about that family and what they did, it probably won't surprise you to know that their surname was Roberts, which is quite a common name. Mm. And I ended up having to pick through lots and lots of records about people called Roberts in the early 16th century, just mm. starting in London. But I would find, because London as now is a bit of a melting pot, people would come into London for work. I found that there was a Roberts family that had members um, living and working in London, but really they all came from Wales. So they were the Welsh Robertses, and they weren't my family, but I had to sort of eliminate them from my inquiries, I suppose. Mm. Um, there's another family based in Kent, and another family based in Essex. My Roberts family are based in Middlesex, which is now essentially a part of London. It's been swallowed up by the expansion of London, but it was quite separate in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And so when members of my family went back to Middlesex, it would be like they were going back to the country, even though it's not very far. Um, they have this dual identity between London and Middlesex because the father, as I think of him, Thomas Roberts, the, the first guy that I was interested in, is a lawyer, so he's trained at the Inns of Court in mm -hmm. London, and he has his legal office, I suppose, in London. But then his um, family seat is in Middlesex, and he spends a lot of time going between the two places. Yeah. So that's the family. And in terms of manuscripts, you, you said before one of the questions was, um, are 16th century readers still interested in the contents? Um, the Eight manuscripts, you said, what were they broadly about? A similar topic, something very different? A sort of mixed group. Um, they're mostly religious in mm -hmm. some shape or form, which is just what you'd expect, really. Um, so six of them are religious, and two of those are books of hours, which are essentially um, Latin um, books, usually... Um, illustrated or um, illuminated as these are, so they're nice little books mm -hmm. um, and they're used for personal devotion. So on a daily basis, following your prayers, um, looking at the series of images, repeating the prayers, um, the psalms, and generally using them in a kind of specific way which is not quite the same way that we read books. Mm -hmm. Four of the manuscripts were religious in a different sense, in that they contain devotional texts written in English, mostly in prose. Um, one of them is a single longer text, Nicholas Love's Mirror of the Blessed Life of Jesus Christ, which is a very popular work in the 15th and the 16th century. Um, this is a manuscript book, but that text was printed many times before the Reformation, so it's kind of key standard reading, mm. popular reading. One of the religious manuscripts is 
a kind of composite text which has lots of different sections all about how to be a good Christian. Um, it's called Poor Caitiff. So you, again, that's standard devotional reading. And then the other two religious manuscripts were a kind of mixture of shorter religious texts. Hmm. So that's six of the eight. Yeah. All religious, but in different ways. And yeah. you can read them in different ways. The other two are sort of outliers in a sense, though entirely typical of what a household like this, which is a middle-class gentry household, might have had. One of them is a um, collection of medical recipes, mm -hmm. which you could use if you had ailments. Yeah. Um, so that kind of doesn't go out of fashion, essentially. And you can see that um, it, there's annotation and use. So if you had a headache, you go and look in this book for what remedies to take. There are several, because I guess many didn't work. Mm. So, you know, there's lots of different alternative <laughs> treatments. Um, so it's this whole book of medical recipes. And then the last book um, must relate to Thomas's work, because it's a a work of legal text, essentially. It's called Registrum Brevium, and it's a standard work that a 16th, 16th century lawyer would have had. Mm -hmm. And what did you find during your research then? How did the readers use the medieval text, and were there differences between the six religious ones and the two uh, I don't know if you can call them secular ones, but non-religious books. They, they all have annotations um, to a greater or a lesser degree. They all have quite a lot of instances where either Thomas or Edmund, his son, wrote their names in the book. One thing that struck me was that they didn't just write their names at the beginning of the book, which is, if you write your name in a book, that's where you'll put it, yeah. probably. Um, some people do that, some people don't. These men seem to write their names repeatedly mm -hmm. and at first sight, randomly through the book. And that's one thing that led me to realize that some of these books, I don't think, were actually bound together in firm coverings at the time. Mm -hmm. I think they were more like a series of gatherings. So if you think of something like a, a ring binder in which you've got things in those Polly Pocket folders, yeah. you can easily take sections out, but you can also keep them together. Mm. I think some of their books were like that. And to protect them, they wrote their name at the start of each of those individual gatherings. Oh, okay. Perhaps because they lent a section to someone but wanted to get it back. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the things I noticed. It's really helpful that they put their name on things because otherwise you can't find that there's a connection between books and owners. In, in the books of ours, um, one of them is more heavily written in than, than the other. The one that's more heavily written in is really interesting because once I had spent quite a lot of time working with these manuscripts. I was able to unpick handwriting that was Thomas's and handwriting that was Edmund's. And in this book of ours, which is in Cambridge University Library, 
I could really clearly see that Thomas had had it first and he had added certain things mm -hmm. and then it had ultimately become his sons yeah. and that Edmund had added other things and I could even see that Edmund's son Francis um, had written some things. There's a bit which tells you when Edmund died, obviously not written by Edmund um, and eventually I worked out that that must be Francis. So you, so you could see that book passing through the generations mm. as well as their names they each would write in other materials um, sometimes extra prayers favorite prayers little short prayers in either latin or english sometimes things that we wouldn't think of as prayers um, there's a category of text called charms which are a bit like spells mm. And there's one in there which um, tells you what to do if your house is burning down. And there are certain things that you can say which will protect it. Um, okay. Say, helpful. Yes, helpful. <laughs> so various things like that. Um, and you find charms um, also, not that particular one, but, but charms for different things. You find those in amongst medical recipes as well in the Middle Ages. So in the volume of medical recipes, Every so often, there are also charms. We would think that was strange mm. and not medical, not of practical use. But if, if you think your way back into the mindset of the Middle Ages, where you live in a more spiritual society, where a big part of your life is involved with worship and religion, um, then why would you not believe that praying would be just uh, as effective as taking the equivalent of aspirin? Mm -hmm. Why would you not believe that? So when you get that into your head, you realise that there's actually nothing odd about having a series of medical recipes which tells you to take particular prescriptions, punctuated by something that tells you to repeat these words, um, X number of times, there's a kind of uh, sort of element of incantation about it. So something that says, you know, if you say this short prayer and you repeat the name of God um, seven times um, every day for seven days, you will be cured. You would believe that this was as effective as mixing together herbs. Mm -hmm. So we find those things in the medical um, anthology, but we also sometimes find them added in the books of ours as well. And they're clearly things that are valued. Yeah. How does that fit with the historical context of the Reformation and the religious transformations that are taking place? So one of my big questions as this project developed um, was what happened to my family. I always call them my family, yeah. they're not actually related to me, um, which I just mentioned that because actually um, a colleague at another university actually revealed to me at one point that he thought I was researching my family history oh. <laughs> with this book because I always use this term my family but they're not at all related to me. I did wonder you know, what happened to them as they went through the Reformation. Obviously, prior to the Reformation, they're Catholic because everyone was Catholic. Mm -hmm. 
But what happened, particularly as we move on from Thomas Roberts, who dies in 1542, so he has barely lived through the English Reformation. Um, what happens to his children? Do they remain Catholic? In which case they're going to have a harder time in the 16th century. Or do they become Protestant? Right? Or do they diplomatically you know, move with the times? Mm -hmm. Because as you go through the 16th century, you have Edward VI reign, which is quite strongly Protestant, but then he's succeeded by Mary Tudor, and it's back to being Catholic. Not for very long though, then it's Elizabeth's reign, about five years later and you're back to Protestantism again. And we, we know, looking back now, that Protestantism becomes the state religion mm. from that point on. But it wouldn't have looked like that at the time, especially not if you had lived through Edward, then Mary, then Elizabeth. You wouldn't know what was happening next. So I was really interested to try and detect from what evidence there is which way members of this family decided to go. And that also relates to historical records, as well as relying on these eight um, medieval manuscripts. I was also searching through historical records for any mention of these people. Mm -hmm. It's easier with Thomas because he was a lawyer, mm -hmm. and so lawyers create paperwork. Um, in the end, I was able to find some actual legal documents that Thomas wrote as a lawyer for other people. Mm -hmm. So that gave me a really good example of his hand and also located him for me in particular areas at particular times because historical documents are dated and they're place dated as mm -hmm. well. But to go back to the idea about Catholic or Protestant, um, Thomas I couldn't really tell but he was very, um, like many men of his time and like many lawyers, he was actually quite invested in the legal workings of the late medieval Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. Lawyers did lots of work for monasteries um, and nunneries, particularly nunneries. Um, and this is what I've discovered um, Thomas doing some of the time. He went to certain religious houses within a, an orbit of Middlesex to transact business on behalf of the house. So nunneries, for example, would own property, but they would need a lawyer to do conveyancing, collecting rents, you name it, they mm. need someone to do that. That lawyer has paid a stipend for doing that work. At the Reformation, all that work suddenly disappears. So part of your income goes with that. Mm. See, he was quite um, part and parcel of that fabric um, and then loses that work. And that led me to think, well, what did he then do at the Reformation? Was he suddenly employed by the other side? Because in the great dismantling of religious houses at the Reformation, when all of their lands are confiscated, all of their property is confiscated, that also requires a lot of legal work 
a lot of men on the ground, essentially. And I wondered whether people like Thomas, who were already in connection with a particular house, suddenly kind of, you know, changed direction and started not returning revenue to that house, but taking it away, taking it back to the state. And I couldn't find direct evidence of that because a lot of these houses were very small and a lot of the records don't survive. I spent a while trying to figure out as well, was this a source of where he got his manuscripts from? Mm-hmm. Were they books from religious houses okay. coming out of their libraries? Yeah. Again, I couldn't pin this down either because there, there are great gaps in the records, but I was suspicious of some of the books because although I could trace Thomas's family back into the 15th century, quite a long way in Middlesex. I could see that family was there. And although some of the manuscripts that I knew Thomas owned were 15th century, so they were older than he was, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have names in them of his family before him. But they did have non-family names. So those books came from somewhere else. And I wanted to try and unpick, you know, well, where did he get them from? I couldn't do it in all cases. But in one case, I know that he was bequeathed books by a fellow lawyer, a friend at the Inns of Court. I don't know what those books were because they don't survive, but I have the lawyer's will, which Mm -hmm. says he's leaving leaving his Bible um, and his registrum his register to Thomas Roberts. Well, Thomas Roberts has that legal book, which is called a register, but it doesn't have the previous lawyer's name in it. Okay. So I can't definitively say, oh, this is that book and he got it from there. That's what we call circumstantial evidence. Mm-hmm. But it looks like that's where it's from. Fascinating. So there are all these kind of, these routes that you try and go back on and eventually it's like you're following a road and then it sort of peters out Mm. and you have to draw a conclusion or you can make suggestions and but time and time again when you work back from the 16th century you do ultimately hit a kind of brick wall Mm. and new discoveries can you know can reveal something new to you eventually but at lots of points you have to kind of draw a line and yeah. think, you know, I've searched for this for such a long time and I'm not finding any more now. Mm. But you were able to draw some conclusions, even, let's say, tentative conclusions. Um, and in your title, you hint at certain continuities of reading um, in the English Reformation. And I was just wondering uh, what were some conclusions that you could find there? Particularly when I started thinking about Edmund, because Edmund is born in the 1520s. So when the dissolution of the monastery started in the mid-1530s, he would have been a teenager, almost Mm. adult. And then in his early adulthood, when he's trying to establish himself, his father dies in 1542, so he's 22. And we're into... 
were beyond the Henrician Reformation. The, the monasteries had been swept away. Um, we're moving in the late years of Henry's reign and then into Edward's reign into a, a Protestant mindset. That must have been just a tremendous change for Edmund and his father doesn't see that because his father dies in 1542. Mm. So I started to focus on Edmund. I couldn't connect all of the books with him because his signature is not in all the all of the books or his annotations are not in all of the books. So I couldn't be sure that he had all those books. Maybe they went to some of his many siblings. Maybe they didn't all go to him. Mm. But the ones that he did have, and there's one that I know he had that his father didn't have, um, could reveal to me what he was like. At the same time, I couldn't find out as much about him in the historical records as I could about his father. And eventually, that started to strike me as being suspicious. Mm -hmm. Because the bit where I could find out about him, once he'd become an adult and it was... Um, reasonable to think that I would be able to find out information about him. The kind of window when I found most records was in the reign of Mary Tudor. Mm -hmm. Now that suggests that that Edmund was sort of the right kind of person to benefit from Mary's reign. So it suggests that he really went on being Catholic mm -hmm. or closet Catholic or at least he could flourish in that reign and there were no difficulties for him. When Elizabeth comes to the throne, Edmund seems to rather disappear from the record. He doesn't seem to be given commissions anymore. Um, within local society, these are the kind of men who ran the town or mm. the village, like the local mayor, the local justice of the peace. There are all these roles to be filled on the parish council or the equivalent. Okay. Um, and that's where I found Thomas's, Thomas Roberts's name in spades, but for Edmund only in Mary's reign. And then he just seems to melt away. Yeah. So he doesn't seem to be a die-hard Catholic. He's not out there protesting. Um, he doesn't seem to get fined for being a recusant. Mm. But I think he's quietly Catholic. And I didn't find anything in his books and in his annotations to suggest that he was anything other than that. So when he's reading this material, which if you remember was written in the early 15th century or the late 14th century, so he's de facto Catholic, mm -hmm. he's never you know, crossing things out or objecting or saying this is papish nonsense and so on. Mm -hmm. There's none of that. There's only the kind of underlining and little comments sometimes. In one book, he writes alongside a prayer, um, which is all to do with like a kind of pseudo meditation of Christ on the cross, um, where you're imagining Christ suffering and dwelling on it so you're trying to to feel it yourself he's written alongside a very good prayer mm -hmm. so that's clearly something he was using in his devotions and he's marking it out to find it easily for his children perhaps to find it easily after him 
So I think, and I spent ages um, trying to fathom this out, I think that rather than there being any dramatic changes in religion in this family, they went on being what they were. Mm -hmm. They may have had to disguise that. They may have had to live quietly in the country. Um, some members of the extended family are um, persecuted for being Catholic. Mm -hmm. okay. It's a big family. I didn't mention that. Um, there are family records in some of the books which help you trace it. Thomas Roberts was married three times. The first marriage, there seemed to have been no children that I can trace. The second marriage, there are three surviving daughters. And the third marriage, there are three surviving sons. So Edmund is from the last marriage. Mm -hmm. But there's an interesting note in one of the books that says that Thomas Roberts had in all 24 children. Oh so 24 <laughs> through three marriages of which only six survive. Mm to adulthood, um, but six children, of which Edmund is one, gives you a lot of grandchildren. So it's a big family that's really spread out. Mm. Um, Edmund himself has two wives and lots of children. Um, so through all these different layers, one of Thomas's grandchildren, through his eldest daughter, Dorothy, one of the granddaughters is definitely Catholic because she becomes one of the prioresses of the House of Sion, which is um, a really major house in the later Middle Ages in Middlesex, just on the edge of London. It's a Bridgetine foundation, it's the only one in England. And it's it's one of the last houses to be closed at the Reformation, and it's probably because it was such a big part of London society. It was almost a kind of celebrity mm -hmm. destination. Any family who was anyone probably had a daughter in the women's side of Sion. It's a double house, so there are monks there as well. Um, when it's closed down, it goes into exile on the continent. and. Thomas Roberts's granddaughter, Ursula, is the prioress when it's in exile on the continent towards mm -hmm. the very end of the 16th century. So she's definitely Catholic. Yeah. So, so some bits of the family are more Catholic and openly Catholic mm. and fleeing England to keep on with their religion. There are other members who stay in England and who keep being fined for being Catholic. Mm. But that doesn't happen to Edmund. He doesn't lose any property. Um, he remains quite prominent in Middlesex in terms of we know the family property that's held there. People from that family are buried in St Mary's Church at Willesden. The brasses are still there in the church. Um, that's a Church of England church now. Mm. Um, but the Roberts family chapel was there. So there are all these things that it was quite hard for me to, to work out. Yeah. And ultimately, because in the 17th century, the Roberts family is still a big family in Wilsdon, they must have been Protestant by then. Otherwise, it would be too difficult for mm. them. 
But Edmund, I think, just quietly kept on with the religion that he had been born in. This religious, or this transformation of the religious affiliation in the family, did it surprise you when doing the research, or does it fit with other things that you know about the period, other cases of families and individuals? I didn't really know about the period before I started mm -hmm. because I'm essentially a 15th century historian mm -hmm. and the root of my work has been on 15th century literature and manuscripts. That That's where I started and so that's where I feel most comfortable. Going forwards into the 16th century is quite a leap for me mm. in the sense of you need to know the history to be able to understand anything else. And I knew 15th century history pretty well. Or in fact, what I realized was that I knew 15th century history very well up until um, 1450, 1460, mm -hmm. because from a previous project, I'd worked on a medieval scribe and that was the period that he worked in. So I knew that history and also in relation to London, because that's where the scribe was based, knew that inside out. Then the second half of the 15th century was a, a little bit murkier, so <laughs> I needed to get my head around that. Moving into the 16th century, um, I had to do some, you know, some kind of core reading mm. to bring myself up onto speed. Um, so things like Eamon Duffy's work about the Reformation was really useful to me because he's a Catholic historian and some of his work is, is kind of looking back to the Middle Ages and expresses a sense of regret for what's been lost. So I could tap into that quite easily. Um, not straightforward historical writing, but some things that actually helped me get a mood, um, a feel for this period, mm. were Hilary Mantel's novels about Thomas Cromwell. So Wolf Hall, um, Bring Up the Bodies, and then eventually she published the, the much-desired third volume, The Mirror and the Light. Um, those novels are really good because they're mm -hmm. very historically grounded. Um, and I just absolutely loved reading those. And that did help me to conceptualise, to get a sense of the period, especially because um, the period when Thomas Cromwell is um, involved in dismantling um, medieval religion, dismantling the monasteries. He, he is in overall control of these people who are being sent out to different areas to do that. And I could see from the historical records that I was looking at that when these commissions were set up in London, you look and there's a big, big series of names and they start with people like Cromwell at mm. the top. and the more um, important people, um, the titled people, but then they come down through the gentry. And so some of these records start with Cromwell at the top and then closer to the bottom, I see Thomas Roberts's name. Yeah. So this is a circle in which these people are moving. And the Inns of Court, where Thomas Roberts is very active, is also an important environment where more important and lesser important people are going to interact. Mm. So, so the, that reading, although Hilary Mantel is imagining this, she does do her historical research. So that helped me as well as um, more straightforward 
um, scholarly research, I suppose, on the periods. Yeah. So it's a case of just kind of um, living and breathing a new area. Um, and additionally, I also had to get to grips with 16th century paleography. Is there a lot of change? Yes, because handwriting style changes all the time. Um, so something that hindered me to begin with was that by this stage, because I've worked on 15th century manuscripts throughout my career, I can read 15th century writing really without any problem, as if it were my own handwriting mm -hmm. a lot of the time. And from very early on, when I'd worked on 15th century manuscripts, I'd seen later annotations, and I know they're 16th century or 17th century, because I couldn't read them. They were much harder <laughs> to decipher. So I just, initially I wasn't interested in those, and I just ignore that. Um, now, it's like that came back to bite me because I suddenly was going over these manuscripts and what I was interested in was not the 15th century writing really in the centre of the page. It's these little comments and things, which are also harder because they're added and they're more casual often. Mm. So, like scribble, and that's going to be harder to read than a, you know, a, a careful hand. So I had to learn 16th century writing and the things that helped me with that were at the same time that I was doing this research, I've also been developing my paleography teaching, mm -hmm. which has not just been my own area of expertise, it's both earlier and later. So the, the teaching that I've done in history and in English with Rachel Hart, who works in special collections, and actually who is an expert in her own right on 16th century, Scottish writing, which is even harder than English <laughs> writing. Um, it was that process of teaching with Rachel that helped me get better mm. understanding how 16th century handwriting worked. And then that fed back into how well I was able to read it. And yeah. then puzzling over the research helped me be a better teacher of it. So it's actually one of those points where teaching and research kind of intersect mm. in quite a useful way. And it does sound like you expanded your horizon so much with that uh, project. I'm, I'm amazed. <laughs> um, and then what followed from the publication of your book? Did you stay with the 16th century for a bit? Um, or what are you working on at the moment? Um, I always have lots of pots on the boil. <laughs> um, and several things have, have been completed or published since, which were kind of boiling away while I was finishing this book. Um, so I have done more on similar things. Um, I had a piece which looked particularly at books of hours and how um, they were passed on to later readers in a London orbit actually. So that was really quite close to this, but with different readers, not this family. And mm -hmm. um, so I did more on that. I am currently working on a similar project which takes me into the 17th century. Even further. <laughs> Even further. Um, and which looks at something a bit different because I'm interested, I've become interested just by following a little random thread in how 
the writings of John Gower, who was a contemporary of Geoffrey Chaucer, went on being read through the 16th and the 17th century. And this, this relates to something that I just spotted in a book in our collection in the university library. And that's often how I get my ideas, mm -hmm. um, is from a physical object. It's how this 16th century book started, but that manuscript was in Cambridge. So I've got some things which, which will look as though they fit together with this, but actually often they, they start in different ways. But a, a bigger ongoing project that I've started since finishing this one has been looking at how not whole manuscripts from the Middle Ages, but bits and pieces of manuscripts, little fragments that have become detached either accidentally or deliberately from the book that they belong to. How those fragments have survived and been passed from hand to hand from different owners, not just in the immediate aftermath of the Middle Ages, which is what interested me about the 16th mm. century, but subsequently right down to the present day. And so I'm currently spending quite a lot of time thinking about what happened to medieval manuscripts in the 18th, the 19th, the 20th century, and particularly how they got um, fragmented. There, there was quite a fashion in the 18th, particularly in the 19th century, for collecting bits of medieval manuscripts. So if you think about something like a collection of stamps or a collection of photographs, things that you might put into an album, mm. or a random collection like a scrapbook where you fix things into a book, well, people made those collections of little bits and pieces of medieval manuscripts, usually the pictures, because they were interesting to look at. But sometimes people did it um, for samples of handwriting, mm -hmm. because they were trying to create a kind of history of paleography, of um, bits of writing. And I got interested in these because you find references to them. But personally, I had never seen an album made up of these bits and pieces mm -hmm. of um, manuscript fragments. And I worked in a lot of libraries and I've seen hundreds of manuscripts by now. So I just became quite curious about these albums and where they might be. Yeah. And so you, I've been tracking those down. I do know of some now and where they are. I haven't actually managed to physically see one because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. This is one thing that was taking me through those years. I've seen one on Zoom. Um, I mean, I've seen many um, examples of things digitally, um, but I've seen one that was shown to me on Zoom really kindly by the staff at Glasgow Special Collections last year because I couldn't go and visit it. Mm -hmm. And they did a, a one hour um, where, where they sat with the manuscript um, on a Zoom call. And I could say, like, you know, turn the page, turn the page, or go back and so on. Can wow. you zoom in on that? And so on. They, were, they were really, really helpful. Um, and they also recorded that for me so that then I could watch it again. And I could actually take screenshots to use as um, illustrations in papers that I've given. Mm -hmm. I still have to get over to Glasgow to see the real thing. Um, but I, I had been working on this type of thing um, and thinking more broadly about 
why aren't there not more of these albums? Mm -hmm. If everyone had one, where have they all gone? Because I haven't managed to find that many. And I think the truth is that lots of them, as they have come out of libraries and come up for sale or auction, a lot of them have actually been taken apart again. Because if you have a collection of 30, 40, 100, the biggest one I know of had 400 little snippets of medieval manuscripts in an album, you can make much more money by taking each one of those out and selling them individually. Mm. So you've still got all the bits and pieces of the manuscripts. And one thing people have tried to do is reassemble, digitally reassemble the manuscript that they came from. But I'm more interested in that interim phase of the album. And no one's really tried to recreate these albums very much. But I think it's important because in the 18th and 19th century, lots of people would have seen bits of medieval manuscript in that way. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't necessarily have seen the whole manuscripts, which are in someone else's collection. But in a gentleman's home, if he had that kind of book, it's the kind of thing that would have been in a drawing room. And so his visitors would have seen lots of examples of mm -hmm. different medieval manuscripts. In that way, his wife and his children would have seen it in that way. And that just is an important thing about the way that people used to see medieval manuscripts. Mm. And if we don't have any examples now of those albums, we lose that kind of context. And we lose an understanding of how that might have formed people's perceptions mm. of what a manuscript was and what was valuable about it. And I actually think it taps into something that, like if you have seen examples of medieval manuscripts anywhere, it will either have been in a museum, in an exhibition, where you can just see one page at a time, or, it'll have been on Christmas cards, which have reproductions of the nativity. Yeah. You'll have seen lots of examples like that. And the bit on the Christmas cards is usually from an illuminated initial, which is very tiny in the manuscript, but it's mm. been zoomed out of all proportion to show <laughs> you the great detail of it. So your sense of how big that thing is and what its proper purpose was on the page is rather distorted by the way you see it. And we see that distortion when we look at things digitally because we don't get a sense of the whole object mm. or the shape. And I think the people who viewed those 18th and 19th century albums had that same sense of distortion with, without realising it because they just saw little pictures that had been cut out. They didn't realise whether that came from a manuscript which is very small or very large mm. because it was a big choir book. Um, and it's all those kind of ideas that just fundamentally interest me. Mm. And it's how people's perceptions of medieval manuscripts are shaped by their, the ways that they can interact with them. And without knowing quite what it is, that is what my next big project is going to be, I think. It, it's to do with how... how our perceptions of medieval manuscripts and their value that, 
the perceptions that we have now, how those perceptions have been shaped by what's happened to those manuscripts since the Middle Ages, mm. what's happened through the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. So I don't quite know how that's going to take shape. Yeah. Um, I don't know if the kind of book that I will write from that will be something that takes into account all those centuries, or if it tries to focus on the 18th and 19th, or if it looks at collectors and antiquarians, historians, and what they wrote about them. But some of all those things are going to be in that mix. Mm. Amazing. Such a wide-ranging project and with interesting parallels to the present time as well, apparently, um, with the pandemic and life getting more digi digital. Um, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I want to thank you again for taking the time to answer my questions. And it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank it's you. been lovely talking to you, Selma. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.